<laughs> oh my God! Music out. Oh, this is lame. <laughs> so fucking dumb. Do you want to impersonate it? <laughs> <laughs> oh my god, Rob's gonna die when he sees this. <laughs> oh. oh, fuck me, running. We tried. We tried to play you some music. I don't know what the fuck is going on there. I have three out of five bars that should be enough to at least play a fucking song. I never knew you played it from your phone. I thought it was like... It was well, no, it's not playing from my phone. It's playing from my laptop, but it's using my phone's hotspot for the oh, Wi-Fi. Okay. Okay. So if my phone lags, the laptop lags. <laughs> it's so hilarious. It keeps cutting in and out. So yeah. <laughs> this is the best. Oh my god. <laughs> now do Sterling screaming. So is our signal. Um, hi. <laughs> oh, shit. Hello and welcome. I'm Trisha. I'm Chelsea. <laughs> and tonight we are going to be covering another episode of Bell Hook's book, Killing Racism. Or I'm sorry, Killing Your Age, Ending Racism. <laughs> sorry, the music thing fucked me all up. <laughs> <laughs> oh holy shit that was great that was he, he's great. gonna have to use that for his clips for, i know right <laughs> <All Dude>. right. <laughs> okay i see we have somebody in the comments already jeff bridges 
actually we do own the copyrights to this music because um that was written by our staff <laughs> it's okay we won't get copyright hits from facebook for that because that's original <laughs> oh shit here there we go i'll turn on the chat overlay there that's what that's supposed to do and it didn't pop it up that's weird anyway um <laughs> <laughs> I don't. Um, I don't like to rewatch myself, but I'm gonna rewatch the beginning of this later. Um. Uh, right, that, that was just hilarious. Like <laughs> the music gotten in and out. Goodness. Um. Anywho, yeah. So tonight we're going to be reading the essay "Black Beauty and Black Power." Uh, this is starting on page 119, if you have the book and are reading along with us. And, uh, yeah. If you're ready, I'm ready. We can dive right on in here. Alrighty, I'm just trying to find it again. That threw me off. <laughs> <laughs> it threw me off, too. <laughs> All right, here we go. <laughs> oh. Social issues are serious. Let's go. <laughs> right. All right. I'm hitting play. Go for it. Hell yeah. Page 119, essay 11, Black Beauty and Black Power. Internalized racism. No social movement to end white supremacy addressed the issue of internalized racism in relation to beauty as intensely as did the Black Power Revolution of the 60s. For a time, at least this movement challenged black folks to examine the psychic impact of white supremacy. Reading Franz Fanon and Albert Memmi, our leaders began to speak of colonization and the need to decolonize our minds and imaginations. Exposing the myriad ways white supremacy had assaulted our self-concept and our self-esteem, militant leaders of black liberation struggle demanded that black folks see ourselves differently, see self-love as a radical political agenda. That meant establishing a politics of representation which would both critique and integrate ideals of personal beauty and desirability informed by racist standards and put in place progressive standards, a system of valuation that would embrace a diversity of black looks. Ironically, as black leaders called into question racist-defined notions of beauty, many white folks expressed awe and wonder that there existed in segregated black life color-cast systems wherein the lighter one's skin, the greater one's individual social value, page 120. They're surprised that the way color-cast functioned in black life exposed the extent to which they chose to remain willfully ignorant of how systemic white supremacist thinking is established and maintained. Construction of color-cast hierarchies by white racists in 19th century life is well documented in their history and literature. That contemporary white folks are ignorant of this history reflects the way the dominant culture seeks to deny, via erasure, a history of race relations that documents their accountability. This denial allows no space for accountability, no space for whites in contemporary culture to know and acknowledge the primary role whites played in the formation of color castes. All black folks, even those who know very little, if anything at all, about North American history, slavery, reconstruction, etc., know that racist white folks often treated lighter-skinned black folks better than their darker counterparts, and that this pattern was mirrored in black social relations. Individual black folks who grow to maturity in all white settings that may have allowed them to remain ignorant of color caste systems are soon initiated when they have contact 
with other black people. Issues of skin color and caste were highlighted by militant black struggle for rights. The slogan, Black is Beautiful, worked to intervene in and alter those racist stereotypes that had always insisted black was ugly, monstrous, undesirable. One of the primary achievements of black power movement was the critique and in some instances dismantling of color caste hierarchies. This achievement often goes unnoticed and undiscussed largely because it created major unseen and usually undocumented changes in the psyches of black folks, particularly those of us from working class and or poor backgrounds who did not have access to public forums where we could announce and discuss these changes, page 121. Coming of age before black power, most black folks faced the implications of color caste either through devaluation or, or overvaluation. In other words, to be born light meant that one was born with an advantage recognized by everyone. To be born dark was to start life handicapped with a serious disadvantage. At the onset of contemporary feminist movement, I had only recently stopped living in a seg segregated black world and begun life in predominantly white settings. I remember countering white female insistence that when a child is newly born and coming out of the womb, the first concern is to identify gender, whether male or female, by calling attention to the reality that the initial concern for most black parents is skin color, this concern being a direct reflection of the correlation between skin color and success. Militant black liberation struggle challenged this sensibility. It made it possible for black people to have an ongoing public discourse about the detrimental impact of internalized racism as regards skin color and beauty standards. Darker skinned blacks who had historically borne the brunt of devaluation based on color were recognized as having been wronged by assaulted white supremacist aesthetic values. New beauty standards were set that sought to value and embrace the different complexions of blackness. Suddenly, the assumption that each individual black person, irrespective of sexual preference, would also seek a lighter partner was called into question. When our militant charismatic black male revolutionary leader Malcolm X chose to marry a darker skinned woman, he set different standards. These changes had a profound impact on black family life. The needs of children who suffered various forms of discrimination and were psychologically wounded in families and or public school systems because they were not the right color could be addressed, page 122. For example, parents of a dark-skinned child who, when misbehaving at school, would be called a devil or evil and unjustly punished, now had recourse to material written by black psychologists and psychiatrists documenting the detrimental effects of the color caste system. In all areas of black life, the call to see black as beautiful was empowering. Large numbers of black women stopped chemically straightening our hair since there was no longer any negative stigma attached to wearing one's hair with its natural texture. Those folks who had often stood passively by while observing other black folks being mistreated on the basis of skin color felt for the first time that it was politically appropriate to intervene. I remember when I and my siblings challenged our grandmother, who could pass for white, about the disparaging comments she made about dark-skinned people, including her grandchildren. Even though we were in a small southern town, we were deeply affected by the call to end color caste hierarchies. This process of decolonization created powerful changes in the lives of all black people in the United States. It meant that we could now militantly confront and change the devastating psychological consequences of internalized racism. Even when contemporary collective militant black struggle for self-determination began to wane, Alternative ways of seeing blackness and defining beauty continued to flourish. 
These changes diminished as assimilation became the process by which black folks could successfully enter the mainstream. Once again, the fate of black folks rested with white power. If a black person wanted a job and found it easier to get it if he or she did not wear a natural hairstyle, etc., this was perceived by many to be a legitimate reason to change. And of course, many black and white folks felt that the gains in civil rights, racial integration, and the lifting of many long-standing racial taboos, for example, interracial, interracial relationships and the resistance to segregated housing, meant that militant struggle was no longer needed, page 123. Since freedom for black folks had been defined as gaining the rights to enter mainstream society, to assume the values and or economic standing of white privileged classes, it logically follows that it did not take long for interracial interaction in the areas of education and jobs to reinstitutionalize in less overt ways a system wherein individual black folks who were most like white folks in the way they looked, talked, dressed, etc., would find it easier to be socially mobile. To some extent, the dangers of assimilation to white standards were obscured by the assumption that our ways of seeing blackness had been fundamentally changed. Aware black activists did not assume that we would ever return to social conditions where black folks would once again be grappling with issues of color. While leaders like Eldridge Cleaver, Malcolm X, Huey Newton, and many others repeatedly made the issue of self-love central to black liberation struggle, once many rights were gained, new activists did not continue the emphasis on decolonization. Many folks just assumed we had collectively resisted and altered color castes. Few black activists were vigilant enough to see that concrete rewards for assimilation would undermine subversive oppositional ways of seeing blackness. Yet racial integration meant that many black folks were rejecting the ethic of communalism that had been a crucial survival strategy when racial apartheid was the norm and were embracing liberal individualism. Being free was seen as having the right to satisfy individual desire without accountability to a collective body. Consequently, black folks could now feel that the way they wore their hair was not political, but simply a matter of choice. Seeking to improve class mobility, to make it in the white world, black folks began to backtrack and assume once again the attitudes and values of internalized racism, page 124. Some folks justified their decisions to compromise and assimilate white aesthetic standards by seeing it as simply, quote, wearing the mask, end quote, to get over. This was best typified by those black females who wore straight, white-looking wigs to work, covering natural hairdos. Unfortunately, black acceptance of assimilation meant that a politics of representation affirming white beauty standards was being reestablished as the norm. Without an organized ongoing collective movement for black self-determination, militant conscious black critical thinkers and or activists began to constitute a subculture. A revolutionary militant stance, one that seriously critiqued capitalism and imperialism, was no longer the message black masses internalized. Given these circumstances, the radicalization of a leader like Martin Luther King went unnoticed by most black folks. His passionate critiques of militarism and capitalism were not heard. He continues to be remembered primarily for those earlier stages of political work wherein he supported a bourgeois model of assimilation and social mobility. Those black activists who remained in the public eye did not continue a militant critique and interrogation of white standards of beauty. While radical activists like Angela Davis, who had major public forums, continued to wear natural hair and be individually black identified, they did not make continued decolonization of our minds and imaginations central to their political agendas. 
They did not continually call for a focus on black self-love, on ending internalized racism. I liked this chapter, not because I don't know that I'll have a whole lot to say, um, just because I, I can see what she's talking about. It's definitely accurate. I just don't have a lot that I can say personally to uh, relate to it. But I liked her emphasis on this in the way that people just thought that it was sort of an individual choice now and how people remember um, the nice Martin Luther King Jr. Um, and then how Angela Davis, while she does um, wear her hair naturally and present herself as black, that a lot of the time people don't understand that the revolution is not just the things that we see that just be thing, because things change on the surface doesn't mean that our minds are completely understanding of the colonization that it's gone through. And it's a much more thorough kind of revolution that you have to pay more attention to constantly with right. pretty much anything, but with this specifically. Um, it's one of those things that needs the revolution to continue to be ongoing in undoing that mental decolonization or the mental colonization going on. You know what I mean there? Um, undoing all of that, because if you don't unfuck your own mind, you're going to continue to carry it forward in the future. It's going to hit in waves like that. If you'll you don't think that just because time and then more. Yeah. And don't think that just because you've won what you've been asking for that, I mean, a lot of the time they just give you what you're asking for because you bitch too much. It's like calling someone on the phone and bitching for your money back or bitching for a refund or bitching for a coupon. Um, and that never goes far enough and can always be walked back. Yeah. It's like you're just fighting to get what you can and then you stop. Well, the thing is, like, it, it wasn't anybody's intention to stop. Um, it was the federal government's intention to put a stop to it. And for a time, they were successful at that because of the massive violent crackdown that they put against, say, the Black Panther Party and other groups that they worked, you know, locked arms with. Um, because they did not like seeing Black empowerment fucking happening. Especially... But that's Go more ahead. extreme. This is more, this is more subtle is what I'm, is more like a, an underlying well, mind game. It's all a mind game, but like, this is but much. But this is part of what they were teaching about with the entire Panther movement too. If, if my memory serves right, Angela Davis was a Panther as well. Um, you know, the activism came together in a very holistic manner. It wasn't just addressing the wrongs going on like legally and whatnot. It was also addressing this internalized racism that she's talking about of go, no, love yourself, accept yourself. Black is beautiful. You, you don't have to, you know, continue this fucking colorist hierarchy bullshit that got ingrained in you from white supremacist colonizer bullshit you know yeah um so like it it definitely was a facet of that because if you're going to be able to invoke that empowerment within yourself that starts with loving yourself and that means loving every bit of yourself and who you are 
I think, yeah, I mean, I think specifically it's just really important that I think that's the biggest obstacle that we have is people thinking that once they get what they want, that things are changed. I mean, you have to read the underlying, don't get comfortable with people. You have to read the underlying context of what people are saying to you, even if it's nice. It's like, Mm -hmm. what are you here for? Um, And that one really hit with the three different things that she mentioned. It was just like people, people only have so much an attention span and then they want to go back home and they want to like put this all Right. And that's like a a lot of people um, after the civil rights movement were like, fuck yeah, we made some strides. And then they got comfortable instead of going, wait a minute, we ain't fucking done yet. (laughs) And so now we're seeing a resurgence of a, a new civil rights movement beginning to build here. That's why we're seeing the Panther Party itself rebuild and come back. We're seeing the United Panther movement that brings in the White Panthers and the Brown Berets to we're seeing, you know, the second rainbow coalition happening that is everybody who is of this mindset. And it's because we're not fucking done yet. You know, Um, there's still so much more that needs to be addressed and be changed you know, because even with as much ground was taken with the civil rights movement, it's clearly not enough when look at the last fucking few years where we've seen a massive increase in murder by cop of black people, including children. We ain't done yet. You know? (laughs) Yeah. I'll go again. Go for it. Towards the end of the 70s, black folks were far less interested in calling attention to the perpetuation of racism and beauty standards. No one in turn... Wait. Did I get lost? No, she picked up at the right spot. Um, the That bottom paragraph on page 124. Yeah, wait. Oh, I think I accidentally... Oh. That was me. Okay. Okay. I like went over to the other page to look at something and then I left it there. <laughs> uh, gotcha. Yeah. All right. <laughs> radical activists who began to straighten their hair, etc. It was assumed that internalized racial self-hatred was no longer and the way we wore our hair was merely an expression of liberal individualism. Page 125. Heterosexual black male leaders openly chose their partners and spouses using the standards of the color caste system. During the most militant stages of black power movement, they had never really stopped allowing racist notions of beauty to define female desirability, even as they preached a message of self-love and an end to internalized racism. This hypocrisy also played a major role in creating a framework where color caste systems could become once again the accepted norm. Resurgence of interest in black self-determination, as well as growing overt white supremacy, created a context in the 80s where attention could be given the issue of decolonization, of internalized racism. Mass media carried stories about the fact that black children had low self-esteem, that they preferred white images over black ones, that black girls liked white dolls better than black ones. This news was all presented with awe and wonder as though everyone was unaware that any political context could exist for the repudiation and devaluation of blackness. Yet, the politics of racial assimilation had always operated as a form of backlash intended to undermine black self-determination. Not all black people closed our eyes to this reality. 
However, we did not have the access to mass media and public forums that would have made it possible for us to launch a sustained challenge to internalized racism. Most of us continued to fight against the internalization of white supremacist thinking on whatever fronts we found ourselves. As a professor, I continually interrogate these issues in the classroom and as a writer in my books. Nowadays, in some circles, it is fashionable to mock black power struggle and see it solely as a failed social movement. It is easy for folks to make light of the slogan, Black is Beautiful, page 126. Yet this contemporary mockery does not change the reality that the interrogation of internalized racism embedded in this slogan and the many concrete challenges that took place in all areas of black life did produce radical changes even though they were undermined by white supremacist backlash. Most folks refuse to see the intensity of this backlash and place responsibility on radical black activists for having too superficial an agenda. The primary justifiable critique we can make of militant black liberation struggle is its failure to institutionalize sustained strategies of critical resistance. Collectively and individually, we must all assume accountability for the resurgence of color caste hierarchies in black life. White supremacist, capitalist, patriarchal assaults on movements for black self-determination aimed at ending internalized racism were most effectively launched by mass media. Institutionalizing a politics of representation which ended years of racial segregation put black people on the screen even as the images produced were mirrored stereotypes. These representations undermined black self-determination. The affirmative Affirmation of assimilation as well as racist white aesthetic standards became one of the most effective ways to undermine efforts to transform internalized racism in the psyches of the black masses. When these racist stereotypical images were coupled with concrete reality, whereby assimilated black folks were the ones receiving greater material reward, the culture was ripe for a resurgence of color caste hierarchy. Color caste hierarchies embraced the issues of both skin color and hair texture. Since lighter-skinned black people often are genetically connected to intergenerational pairings of both white and black people, they tend to look more like whites. Females who were the offsprings of generations of interracial mixing are more likely to have long straight hair, page 127. The exploitative and or oppressive nature of color caste systems in white supremacist society has always had a gendered component. A mixture of racist and sexist thinking informs the way color caste hierarchies detrimentally affect the lives of black females differently than they do black males. Light skin and long straight hair continue to be traits that define a female as beautiful and desirable in the racist white imagination and in the colonized black mindset. Darker skinned black females must work to develop positive body self-esteem in a society that continually devalues their image. To this day, the image of black female bitchiness, evil temper, and treachery continues to re be represented by someone with dark skin. Light-skinned women are never represented as sapphires. Only dark-skinned females occupy this devalued position. We see these images continually in mass media, whether they be pre presented to us in television sitcoms, like the popular show Martin, on cop shows, the criminal bad black woman is usually dark, and in movies made by black and white directors alike. Spike Lee graphically portrayed conflict over skin color in his film School Days, not via male characters, but by staging a dramatic fight between light-skinned women and their darker counterparts. His film merely exploited the issue. It was not critically subversive or oppositional. And in many theaters, black audiences loudly expressed their continued investment in color cast hierarchies by 
introducing darker-skinned female characters. Um, so is a sapphire um, a prostitute, or is a sapphire the girl of a gang member? Honestly, I don't know. I tried to look it up on Urban Dictionary, and I think it's so outdated that I couldn't figure out what it was. <laughs> um... I'm I'm really not sure of, about the reference because I've never heard that one before, um, so I I honestly couldn't tell you. Um, I'm that, not surprised at what she said here either, um, and I and I'm also not surpri surprised about her previous statement that um, whites are in awe of the fact that there's color caste systems because of white supremacy that instilled that or that um, black girls prefer white dolls and things like that. But at the same time, it is strange to me to be on the other side of that and to still see things in that way, to be the victim of that and to still see things that way is what's weird to me. Um, obviously I can't put myself in those shoes, but I don't know, having been, having being an ex-Christian and being um, a victim of male abuse, it's just really hard for me to see how I ever would have reacted to it in an opposite way. It's just very strange to me. But Well, it's, it's one of those things where even like in that example she gave of the the children preferring white dolls over black dolls, that's something that um, people we're actually starting to recognize at this point in time in the nineties when she wrote this. Um, and because of that, there grew a huge movement to go, fuck this. We need to have dolls actually representing every shade of the rainbow, not just white Barbie, you know? Um, and thank goodness for that actually happening of children having toys now where they can actually see themselves represented there. And to maybe stop passing down that that mind fuck that came from said uh, colonization of the mind, yeah, you know, because that that's something that until psychologists started actually seeing this in what toys children were selecting, it it was kind of going under the radar that this was even being ingrained in little kids. She gets more into that as well. Um, and I, I know that you've read it still also. Um, how much do you think that that has changed today? Do you think that it's significantly changed? I mean, it seems as though it has to me, but I obviously don't live that experience. And also it plays into her last essay where she talks about how the media portrays um, situations that may not be realistic to um, actual life. Um, so it just makes me wonder. Um, I mean, I, I think there's been improvement for sure. Um, but again, are we done yet? No. Yeah. You know? No, I definitely don't think we're done. Um, <laughs> it's just... I mean, it's kind of the same vein as the last essay with the mass media and things like that. So, right. 
Um, I, I think it has at least improved greatly with the fact that there's more representation. Yeah. I mean, it's obviously not done yet. I mean, because you still hear of specific celebrities, um, whitewashing themselves. I can think of one of them off the top of my head. Uh, and she thinks she's a terrorist. Yeah. She came to so, mind too. Yeah. yeah. You know, um, at some point in this series, we, we need to actually grab that video from BET if possible. And okay. maybe, uh, maybe we could do it at the I, last episode or something. Yeah. If, at if least we can get it. Yeah. At least show a clip of, of that conversation of her breaking that down of why she called her a terrorist. Bell Hooks called Beyonce a terrorist, everybody. Um, I felt like, it, like at first I was trying to be ambiguous and not go there, but now I'm just like, now I'm saying terrorist and everybody's like, what's going on? Um, so, um, but yeah, I still have that article saved. It was very interesting. I would like to read the whole thing or listen to the whole thing. Um, but yeah. Right. I, I got to read the whole thing, but it wouldn't load the video for me. It wasn't me long enough to understand the whole context yet. Um, all right, I'll start again. Okay. Throughout the history of white supremacy in the United States, racist white men have regarded the biracial white and black female as a sexual ideal. Black men have taken their cues from white men in this regard, stereotypically portrayed as embodying a passionate sensual eroticism as well as a subordinate feminine nature. The biracial looking black woman as well as the biracial woman has been and remains the standard other black females are measured against, page 128. Even when darker-skinned black women are given play in mass media, television, and movies, their characters are usually subordinated to lighter-skinned females who are deemed more desirable. For a time, films that portrayed the biracial-looking black woman as a tragic mulatto were passe, but contemporary films like the powerful drama One False Move return this figure to center stage. Whereas the impact of militant black liberation struggle had once impressed upon white dominated fashion magazines and black magazines to show diverse images of black female beauty. In more recent times, it has been acceptable to simply highlight and valorize the image of the biracial looking black woman and the biracial woman. Black women models like Naomi Campbell find that they have a greater crossover success if their images are altered by long straight wigs, weaves, or bonded hair so that they resemble the wannabes folks who affirm the equation of whiteness with beauty by seeking to take on the characteristic look of whiteness. This terrain of drag, wherein the distinctly black-looking female is made to appear in a constant struggle to transform herself to look like a white female, is a space only a brown-skinned black woman can occupy. Biracial-looking black women and biracial women already occupy a distinctly different, more valued place within the beauty hierarchy. Once again, as in the days of slavery and racial apartheid, White fascination with racial mixing determines the standard of valuation, especially when the issue is valuation of black female bodies. A world that can recognize the dark-skinned Michael Jordan as a symbol of black beauty scorns and devalues the beauty of Tracy Chapman. Black male pop icons, especially comedians, mock her looks. And while folks comment on the fact that light-skinned and or biracial women have become the stars of most movies that depict black folks, no one has organized public forums to talk about the way this mass media focus on color undermines our efforts to decolonize our minds and imaginations. Page 129. 
Just as whites now privilege lighter skin in movies and fashion magazines, particularly with female characters, folks with darker skin face media that subordinate their image. Dark skin is stereotypically coded in the racist, sexist, and or colonized imagination as masculine. Hence, a male's power is enhanced by dark looks, while a female's dark looks diminish her femininity. Irrespective of people's sexual preferences, the color caste hierarchy functions to diminish the desirability of darker-skinned females. Being seen as desirable does not simply affect one's ability to attract partners. It enhances class mobility in public arenas, in educational systems, and in the workforce. Fundamentally, the tragic consequences of color caste hierarchy are evident among the very young who are striving to construct positive identity and healthy self-esteem. Black parents testify that black children learn early to devalue dark skin. One black mother in an interracial marriage was shocked when her four-year-old girl expressed the desire that her mom be white like herself and her dad. She had already learned that white was better. She had already learned to negate the blackness in herself. Yet her black mother had been unaware that her daughter was internalizing racist attitudes and values. In high schools all around the United States, darker-skinned black girls must resist the societal socialization that encourages them to see themselves as ugly. They must resist the socialization in order to construct healthy self-esteem. Concurrently, they must resist the efforts of peers to devalue and berate them. This is just one of the tragic implications of black reinvestment in color caste hierarchies. Had there never been a shift in color consciousness among black people, no one would have paid special attention to the reality that many black children seem to be having as much difficulty learning to love blackness in this racially integrated time of multiculturalism as folks had during periods of intense racial apartheid, page 130. Kathy Sandler's documentary film, A Question of Color, examines the way black liberation politics of the 60s challenged color cast even as she shows recent images of activists who returned to conventional racist-defined notions of beauty. This shift is most signaled by changes in hairstyles. Sandler's film is an important intervention because it creates a cultural context wherein serious discussion of color casts can once again become an integral part of public discourse. Unfortunately, Sandler does not offer suggestions and strategies for how we can deal with this problem now. Merely describing the problems of color cast is not an act of critical intervention. Change will come only as we know the ways these hierarchies create a crisis of consciousness and must be addressed politically if we are not to return to an old model of class and caste where those blacks who are most privileged will be light-skinned and or biracial and act as mediators between the white world and a disenfranchised, disadvantaged mass of black folks with dark skin. Right now there is a new wave of young, well-educated biracial folks who identify as black and who benefit from this identification socially as well as when they enter the workforce. Although they realize the implicit racism at work when they are valued more by whites than darker-skinned blacks, the ethic of opportunistic liberal individualism sanctions this complicity. Ironically, they may be among those who critique color caste even as they accept the perks that come from the culture's reinvestment in color caste hierarchies, page 131. Until black folks begin to collectively critique and question the politics of representation that systematically devalue blackness, the devastating effects of color caste will continue to inflict psychological damage on masses of black folks.
to intervene and transform those politics of representation informed by colonialism, imperialism, and white supremacy, we have to be willing to challenge the effort of mainstream culture to erase racism by suggesting it does not really exist. Recognizing the power of mass media images to define social reality, we need lobbyists and the governments, organized groups who sponsor boycotts, etc., to create awareness of these concerns and to demand change. Progressive non-black allies in struggle must join the effort to call attention to internalized racism. Everyone must break through the wall of denial that would have us believe hatred of blackness emerges from troubled individual psyches and acknowledge that it is systematically taught through processes of socialization in white supremacist society. That black folks who have internalized white supremacist attitudes and values are as much agents of this socialization as their racist non-black counterparts. Progressive black leaders and or critical thinkers who are committed to a politics of cultural transformation that would constructively change the lot of the black underclass and thus positively impact the culture as a whole need to make decolonizing our minds and imaginations central when we educate for critical consciousness. Learning from the past, we need to remain critically vigilant, willing to interrogate our work as well as our habits of being to ensure that we are not perpetuating internalized racism. Currently, more conservative black political agendas, like the Nation of Islam and certain strands of Afrocentrism, are the only groups who make self-love central as a strategy to capture the imagination of the masses. Page 132. Revolutionary struggle for black self-determination must become a real political movement in our lives if we want to counter conservative thinking and offer life-affirming practices to masses of black folks who are daily wounded by white supremacist assaults. Those wounds will not heal if left unattended. Yeah, we need to do better than the Nation of Islam for sure. All right. Um. <laughs> Yeah, that was a short chapter, but impactful. It was a little bit longer. I think that lady just reads better. It was like 13 pages instead of 9 or 10, but she, like, reads real fast. Right. And she's clearer, too, and she doesn't skip things. That helps. I wonder when this was first taped. Like, because it makes sense that it would be like, oh, it's 2003, and that's bullshit, except it's not. So... Right. It kind of makes me wonder. I I think it was probably recorded on audiobook um, either in the late 90s or early 2000s. Yeah, because just even some of the shit that we've seen them intentionally omit from what they're reading and skip entire pages and stuff. It just it, it reeks of a lot of the shit that was still more prevalent then than it is now. Um, and like, even where she's addressing, say artists and models and stuff like that. Um, I can say at least I'm, I'm glad to see that that vicinity has also made some progress because, uh, now there are a lot of really dropped at gorgeous, beautiful, dark skinned models, being, you know, put center stage on the runway and in print. Um, so apparently the message, you know, was getting across at that point in time to even see that evolution over the last 15 to 20 years where that has shifted. 
Um, but um, so from Jeff's earlier comment that I said that I would look for that, I believe it's feminism. It's a black thing. I think um, so. Um, just, I have the pages turned. Uh, some of it was also referenced in teaching resistance, the racial politics of mass media. Um, yeah, but I think what he specifically, he's like bringing up the feminist movement in general. And I think that's where she mentions um, how the feminist movement never really faced um, like assassinations and things like that and accelerated much faster um, than any other civil rights movement. Right. Uh, uh, as without, well as without as many losses. So. Sorry, my signal was cutting out. I, oh, you're fine. It sounded like you stopped and then it, it cut back in. Okay. Um, but uh, yeah, specifically what he's referencing there, she discussed in um, Feminism, It's a Black Thing. Uh, I, I think that was one of the areas where the person reading it for the audiobook skipped an entire page that was pointing out that white feminists literally used racism as um, a launching point to step on the heads of black women in order to try to lift themselves up to more equality with white men um, and thereby hindered feminism, period, because you, you can't fucking actually uplift all women if it's not all women. They did more harm than anything there with that. Um, it's, she definitely put it better than I possibly can right now because she's quite fucking eloquent. <laughs> so I highly suggest um, reading that chapter or uh, going on our either our website or our Facebook page. You can find the video from that segment too, where we listened to that audio book. Uh, that was really short. It, it was, but and I don't have much to say. Me neither. Cause as I said, you know, before we even hit go live, um, there's not a lot to really elaborate on what she said because she's very clear, concise, to the point, direct, and covers it all. Yeah, I mean, these are things that I'm like, I'm aware of them, but I'm not always like aware of when they're happening in certain media and things like that. Um, and so it was just, sometimes I can come up with examples to help make it more relevant to like whoever's watching or something, but this for me was like, uh, and then, I don't know, at the same time, it like makes you wonder obviously don't stop but like how far have we come from that um and like you've said like i've i've noticed more that there is a lot more diversity that you do see a lot of uh very dark-skinned women being praised and put in um modeling positions and things like that not necessarily even things where they have to take a role they're just themselves um right so but yeah i don't know Still problems. Seems right. to be better. 
let's keep going. Right. Progress made, not done yet. <laughs> yeah. But, um, Are we going to start another solo? What's that? Or I guess it's a duo. <laughs> Are we going to start another duo again? <laughs> Oh, that should be fun. Hopefully the music for the closing will actually play properly. I did move my phone and um, I don't know. Let's You're see. coming across fine the whole time, mostly. So like I thought yeah. that, that was weird that it decided to just do it to that. Um, I, I don't know. My fucking hotspot is weird sometimes. It'll go from crystal clear to just breaking up, cutting in and out. And it gets interesting. Definitely made for an awkward intro, but you know, awkward intros and awkward exits are kind of our thing. <laughs> it's a signature move here at For We Are Many because we're some awkward motherfuckers. <laughs> but, um, uh, yeah, as far as analysis goes, uh, there's really not anything more I can think of to say to elaborate on what said here because she hit it all everything that needed to be covered in relation to that you know um so i guess uh if our viewers don't have any questions or comments to add on we can wrap this segment up and um we'll see you back here sunday for the next episode of this however in the meantime tune in tomorrow for the current event stream and Friday night, same time, 8 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, uh, we will be interviewing Chairman Zulu of the New African Black Panther Party and discussing the, uh, I'm sorry, my, <coughs> I've got an itch in my throat here and I need to take a drink. Um, we'll be discussing the Hassan Shakur Community Center that they have built <coughs> in conjunction with the United Panther Movement and the Second Rainbow Coalition. Uh, that's in Newark, New Jersey. It is, I do believe, the first Panther office to actually open in around 50 years or so. And they've already been taking in donations of food and stuff and getting those put out to the community and stuff, making sure that everybody has their needs met. And that's the whole fucking goal is community care. It's that praxis that real solidarity. And um, so that's going to be an awesome interview. We will be doing that live Friday night. So if you have any questions that you would like to give Chairman Zulu, um, by all means, join us for that. <laughs> all right, here we go. Once again, you're awkward. So, We'll leave you with, with Chelsea's facial expressions. <laughs> Hi, Natalie. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> oh, goodness. There's that. Uh, if if my signal will catch up and pop that slide up there. At least they can't see us if we have to sing again. There we go. Um, <laughs> here's all the places where you can find us. Um, I think that's pretty concise of a list there. I forget. Is there anything else we have added? Because I do need to edit this slide too. You're a social media person. Uh, 
think that covers it all other than, well, we're now on Twitch too. So I'll have to add that to the slide. If you'd like to support what we are doing, you can find us on Patreon at www.patreon.com slash for we are many. Um, and shout out to Left Signal Boost. They are one of our partners that we are also streaming through now too. And on that note, I will grab some music for you to enjoy. And hopefully this time it will play right. And you won't have to listen to Chelsea and I just um, uh, foolish. I think I like my singing. What's that? No one was really here whenever that happened. So I'm like, all right. Wait, it, it went from zero to two viewers in no time. So I'm not sure what point they popped in there and actually <laughs> uh, got to hear our fuckery. But it was fun. Um, and now Google Drive is not wanting to properly load the music, so give me a moment. <laughs> Reloading the page. No, 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 no. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Chelsea. That was classy. Oh, goodness. You've got to go back, Natalie. It's, got <laughs> it's, it's golden. <laughs> Oh my God, it's telling me to refresh the page again and it won't let me refresh the page. This is dumb. Jeez. Oh my goodness. <laughs> Eventually, I hopefully will get the fucking music to play. My signal sucks where I'm at right now. So, my bad. The beginning of the um, screen is better than this, for sure. It's very, very good. Holy shit, it's almost there. <gasps> it finally pulled up the file. It's giving me the spinning wheel of death, but at least it's loading the file. <laughs> we might have music. <gasps> Maybe. In the meantime, my brain is playing Jeopardy music. Just waiting for it, like do 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 But that is not our music. Come on, Google. I seriously do need to just download these files instead. What was that? I don't know. I I impersonate um guitars. That's why I don't have a job doing that. I mean, I have a job. Just I'm not going to quit my day job. <laughs> not going to quit your day job and become a musician and start recording shit with you know, <laughs> Sterling? <laughs> oh, my goodness. Would this fucking play already? My signal is just not helping. So not helping. It now says one bar of 5G. No wonder it's not giving you Here we go!
guitar and I believe he recorded the bass for that too and Sterling on the vocals and Angel on the drums and it's fucking beautiful and on that note mad love see y'all tomorrow good night goodbye